Podcast 38, Westward Ho. One of the great themes in American history is westward expansion, beginning in earnest even before the ink was dry on the formation of the United States. In my family, the first foray in that direction came when my oldest son decided to attend the University of Northern Colorado. His sister soon thereafter married a soldier who was sent to Fort Lewis near Seattle for training before being shipped off to the first Gulf War. When he returned, they settled near Tacoma. A few years later, my youngest was accepted at the University of Montana, and then all three were far west of the Mississippi. So when the challenge arose recently to drive a small car out to my daughter in Seattle, it wasn't like we were heading into the unknown. But a three-day, which turned into a four-day drive, seemed to be like driving towards the unknown, especially since warnings from friends and relations were abundant. You'll be caught in wildfires. There's a heat wave. Bring lots of bottled water. Not much optimism for the trek. I suspect Lewis and Clark got the same kind of send-off in 1804. I started out with memories of times gone by and trips to the to Seattle and the Dakotas and Montana and Wyoming, ranging from years to decades ago. But what were things like in 2023? The route wasn't much of a geographic challenge. Get on US 90 a few miles from my house near Chicago, end up in downtown Seattle. One road all the way. There is a more northern route through North Dakota, a route not unlike that of the Amtrak's Empire Builder train, which I'd taken a couple of decades ago to leave my son off at school. There was also the southern route through Iowa and Nebraska, which would add a few hours more of driving. I do that route to Denver at least once a year, so I'm not very interested or, or, or excited about it. So the solution was the middle route, clipping Wisconsin and Minnesota, and then a long slog through South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, and finally Washington. GPS said the whole trip could be done in about 30 hours. Sure, yeah, maybe by somebody in their 20s who doesn't like to sleep. When you leave Chicago by east, south, or southwest routes, you shed the city slowly. Heading out in a northwesterly direction, you're out of the country, out in the country, even before you pass the Fox River Valley. Day one was spent heading northwest, and while we had four days to get to Seattle, there was not a lot of time to tarry, T-A-R-R-Y. How's that for an old term? It's a good one to remember for Scrabble, I guess. So, would I have liked to have taken a Quick detour to places like Madison, Wisconsin? Yeah, sure, but we had to make it to Sioux Falls the first night. So we soldiered on in our little Honda, 
with 189,000 miles on it. My regular uh, auto mechanic, Boris, assured me this 2009 car would make it, and so we were driving, well, partially on faith. One brief stop in Minnesota was a drive through Austin, home to the Hormel Meatpacking Company. Their main product, yes, of course, it's Spam. There are just some things you have to stop for. I wanted also to stop in Albert Lee just because of the name of it, but no time. The highlight of the first day was visiting the falls at Sioux Falls. Not overly impressive, but the backstory was that there had once been a, quite a beautiful set of falls here, but business developers in the 19th century needed water for electricity, so the need for beauty took second place. The really a big event of day two, however, was visiting Mitchell, South Dakota, and its main attraction, the Corn Palace. Actually, its official name is World's Only Corn Palace. Detouring briefly for this roadside attraction is a testament to the power of billboards and the need to gas up and make a pit stop, I might add. The Corn Palace is just as advertised, a large cupola-laden auditorium-style building that looks like it should be located somewhere in the middle of Russia. It is downtown and quite imposing, but the punchline is that it is built of 13 corn colors and each year, 325,000 of the ears are replaced. I figure if you got 325 townspeople together, that would be a thousand ears each uh, for replacing this thing at harvest time. Wow, amazing. We were able to get to, as far as Sheridan, Wyoming on day two. We didn't arrive until 7 p.m. and were really hungry. So the motel owner suggested a place called the Chop House, which ended up being a real hoot. This is a Western-style steakhouse. How do I know that? Well, the menu, for starters, filled with serious steak offerings, including one gigantic one for $76. Remember, this is Sheridan, Wyoming. The other uh, interesting thing is the clientele. Lots of guys in summer cowboy hats wearing Levi's and enormous belt buckles, really shiny and polished, all glad-handing each other and creating quite a din. Not much self-traffic uh, on the phone at this place. Looking around, these guys kind of reminded you of a convention of Canadian Mounties or FBI or IBM agents or all decked out in matching uniforms. We took it all in and concluded uh, finally it reached, quote, unquote, the West. The goal for day three now was to make it as far as Missoula, Montana, so that on day four we could comfortably reach Seattle. Looking back over day two and day one, we seem to have passed through a lot of flatland, much of it like uh, the annual drives through Nebraska that we make. Ranchers were stacking up hay in little tents all along the way, like squirrels in anticipation, I guess, of a tough winter. Most of the cattle pastured in this wide expanse are Black Angus, a very popular breed of cattle for steak lovers, but we were surprised to see a few spreads with where longhorns roamed, 
which are very cool and bring back memories of old cattle drives we grew up with in the movies. Once you get into Wyoming and Montana, the geography really changes. Same cows and pasture land, but now you're in the Rockies and you start realizing you are in the real mountains of the West. And it's beautiful, especially for us Midwestern flatlanders. It, it seems to start in the western town of Missoula, a town where my son Joe went to college and spent six years for a four-year degree. Sorry. A town we last visited 15 years ago. A town that is now the hot place to be in Montana. How do I know? Well, for one thing, the cheapest hotel room in town, at a Motel 6 no less, was pricing out at about $100 a room. Yikes. So here's where things get a little weird. I have a long-standing penchant against paying a lot of money for hotels while on the road. It goes back to my days as a consultant when I was able to charge a bigger day rate if I kept my expenses down. Anyway, there was no way I was going to spend 100 bucks on a room. I would be barely in for 10 hours. So I shopped online and find, found a one room in a house for 74 bucks. And of course, you get what you pay for. But this place was kind of like out of a horror movie. At least the bed was comfortable, which counts for something. Roger, our host, was a nice guy, but a clueless bachelor, whose handyman skills were sorely wanting. Anyway, we got through it all and kind of felt sorry for him and for ourselves, I might add. The good news was that driving through Missoula brought back some happy memories and we ended up having dinner at a menu, a music menu called the Top Hat that my son's college band, which was called Punch Truck, used to play at 20 years ago. Missoula's success of late can be attributed to central location, uh, to trout streams and national forests. Its location is a vibrant college town. Uh, all of which has uh, contributed to drawing undes undesirables from California who keep pushing up housing costs. The final leg to Seattle was one everybody had been warning us about, where we would have to traverse the Snoqualmie Pass. There are lots of warnings as you approach. It seems that every few feet there's a pull-off the from the highway where you can put chains on your car. But hey, we were doing this in August. And the warnings about hills, well, it seemed to be all downhill to Seattle. So what was the big deal? We were now on our glide path. There's a difference between traveling to the West and being in the West. Seattle's a prime example. Physically, it's a great place to visit. Lush vegetation everywhere. Hilly, beautiful, and interlaced with waterways. And because of all that, it's overpopular now and overpopulated. And of course, that's a blessing and a curse. Logging and shipping were important economic drivers of this great western city. But over the years, that has morphed into high tech being the reason people come here. Our daughter originally came here after her then newly minted husband was assigned to Fort Lewis to learn how to repair Patriot missile batteries. They were assigned to Germany after that, and then he went to the first Gulf War back in the 90s, but returned to Fort Lewis to muster out. Their love affair ended, but both stayed on. 
I've not talked a lot about my daughter in these podcasts. She and her longtime boyfriend, Mike, have been together for about 15 or more years. Both have day jobs and both are committed to the independent music scene there. Kelly teaches beginning guitar, singing piano, and songwriting to young kids, which neatly matches with her career interests. Seattle's musical claim to fame, as you may know, started with Jimi Hendrix, moved on to the grunge scene with Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, and finally Pearl Jam. But that was much before my time. What draws me to this city is the closeness of it to water. Everywhere. Nothing brings that sharper into focus than riding on the city's ferry system that connects inhabited islands like Bainbridge and Vashon and others to Seattle. A 35-minute ferry ride to Bainbridge seems like a brief trip on the high seas to somebody from the Midwest. Many people come to stay because Seattle is where it is these days. As you know, it's a high-tech mecca with names like Gates and Bezos and iconic companies like Starbucks, Costco, Nordstrom, and Amazon. And let's not forget that Boeing and Weyerhaeuser were two of the original Seattle giants. My first visit here was in the 70s uh, to get together with my mother's four cousins in Tacoma, where they ran a small garden center and worked for the railroad taught schools. There was also business trips in the early 70s because this was an EPA regional headquarters that I traveled to. One of my earliest memories is going to an all-night restaurant at 2 a.m. for an amazing breakfast with entertainers and other denizens of the night. The other memory was a night I spent in what I thought was a small country town and visiting a country western bar only to find out the next morning that this little town called Tuckwilla was just a stone's throw from the airport and all those country dancers I'd been watching were mostly IBM types. They pulled a good one on me whether it's Seattle or San Francisco or Los Angeles, the West is the end of the road, the last stop on the line. Family lore has it that my maternal grandpa, Joe, when he was young, rode the rods, an old term for guys who hitched rides on freight lines across the country. He ended up in San Francisco where somebody slipped him a Mickey Finn, which is a knockout drink, while he was playing poker. He woke up on a whaling boat for Alaska. Many other stories come from gold rush days when men rode west to make their fortunes. Now they travel there to make their fortunes on laptops. That's our pioneering world today. Too bad. Horace Greeley's admonition to go west, young man, still holds sway for some, especially in my family, it seems. But I'm content here in the Midwest where we trade flat land for decent weather and lots of water. That's it for now. This is Mel Zellman. Thank you for listening, and catch us next time.